This is chapter 117 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we talk with thriller writer Jack Carr about the book The Government Doesn't Want You to Read. Author Hilary Davidson taps into the effects of her own traumatic experience for her New York City-based thriller. Plus, this week's beach read takes its inspiration from a string of unsolved Long Island beach murders. When you crack open True Believer, the new military thriller from Jack Carr, you'll encounter something you've maybe never seen in fiction before. Dozens of sentences redacted by the Department of Defense. Our Pat Farnack talked with him about why he felt it was necessary to submit his book to the Pentagon for review and how his personal experiences influenced the narrative. Now, True Believer is it, it, it's a fascinating read, and it's a continuing story, really, uh, from your first novel, which was The Terminal List. And we talked uh, on the phone about the, the Terminal List. And we follow your hero, James Reese, who is, like you, a former Navy SEAL. Uh, before we get to the incredible, uh, suspenseful story, you owe some of your success to someone we've also had on WCBS Author Talks, uh, Brad Thor. We just talked to him uh, recently about his latest, which was Backlash, a super book. Um, How did that come about? Well, I got extremely lucky in that uh, a friend of mine sat next to Brad at a fundraiser a few years ago. And when I started writing my novel, he said, hey, would you like, do you know who this guy Brad Thor is? And I said, yeah, I'm I'm familiar. (laughs) And, And he said, well, do you think you'd like to talk to him? I know you're writing this book. And I said, well, would he talk to me? And uh, he said, let me set it up. And so set up a call. And I remember I was so, so nervous. Um, I had the time and wanted to make sure I had good reception and all this. And I was at another event and went out to the car in the sweltering heat Ooh. in the car so I could have a little quiet and uh, talk to Brad. And the first part was kind of like an interview. And it was like it was kind of him wanting to know why I wanted to write. And oh. so I, I told him that uh, it's something I always wanted to do since I was a little kid. My mom was a librarian, and uh, I knew I was going to do two things in life. And one was to be a Navy SEAL, and the second was to write fiction in this genre. Uh, and a lot of that is because back when I was growing up in the 80s, you couldn't just Google Navy SEAL. You couldn't Google special operations and have a bunch of information pop up. A lot of the information about uh, special operations came from fictional thrillers I was reading by guys like David Morrell, Nelson DeMille, Tom Clancy, J.C. Pollock, A.J. Quinnell. Uh, all these guys that were right had protagonists that had backgrounds with as Navy SEALs, as Special Forces guys, as CIA guys, or whatever it was. Um, so I knew that one day I would do that. And as uh, with a, as a, having a mother who was a librarian, I was surrounded by books. And as I was getting out of the military, I started writing. And I think that resonated with Brad. Uh, and he kind of he he said, "Hey, uh, your friend told me some of the things that you did in the military. And as a thank you for that, mm-hmm. if you write a book, I will let." Simon & Schuster know that it's coming. He's like, don't email me along the way. I won't give you any help with any chapters or give you any advice along the way. But if you write it, uh, I will let them know it's coming. I can't guarantee they'll open the package. Can't guarantee they'll even read a word. Or if they do, that they'll like it. Um, But as a thank you, I'll I'll do that. That's huge. I said, that's "That's all I need. Thank you. And he said, when are you going to be done? And I said, a year from today. And then I called him back a year to the day and uh, said, it's done. I said, well, first I said, do you remember me? And uh, I said, yep, I remember you. And uh, I said, it's done. And he was so cool. He said, "Uh, well, is it really done? Is it the best it can possibly be before you send it in? 
And I said, well, it's finished, but I can probably edit for uh, a Mm -hmm. few months here and Mm -hmm. get it as good as I can get it. And he said, okay, call me back when it's as good as you can possibly get it. So Mm -hmm. it took another four months of reading and editing and getting it as good as I could possibly get it on my own and uh, then sent it into Simon & Schuster. And it ended up on Emily Bessler's desk, Emily Bessler Books. And she ended up loving it. And next thing you know, we're off to the races. That's so serendipitous, though. If your friend hadn't been seated next to Brad Thor, if he hadn't been a thoughtful uh, guy, and mm-hmm. he is. He's a cerebral so amazing. guy. Such as a well great guy. As, yeah. I owe everything to him. This next chapter in life would not have been possible without him, so I'll, uh, I'll never forget it. That's a great story in and of itself. Now, Navy SEALs are, are, are such romantic figures, um, uh, especially today. They seem to, to be um, this generation's James Bond, not in the same way, but heroic, almost superheroes. Uh, what about that? I guess it, it you... Uh, present this character at the right time as well. Timing was not bad. Um, So I had my 20 years in the military, and of course over that last... No, let's say 10 years, you know, things like Instagram showed up, things like Twitter showed up, um, and we also went to war. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and SEALs were involved in some high-profile missions that uh, that movies were made about, that books were written about, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So, um, of course, we're not superheroes, and I think that's something that I tried to convey in the book. Mm-hmm. We're just uh, regular people who happen to do this job, and that job is special operations. Um, and, yes, yeah, some of, uh, if, you, if you make a mistake, some of the consequences can be quite dire. Uh, but today, what really what I'm doing on the written page is solving problems aggressively in a fictional sense. And I used to do that on the battlefield uh, in real life. So but it was solving not, problems aggressively. So it's, it's just a different uh, a d- different way of solving problems with a lot less dire consequences. Yeah, but it's not like dropping a comma or, you know, having a dangling <laughs> yeah. participle. Right. I mean, these are life and death uh, consequences that you're talking about. Right, right. Just, and that was, uh, it was 20 years of that. and It was a good, solid run. Uh, but it was very evident that as we, as we got to the end of that 20 years, it was time to get out and take care of my family. So the next chapter in life is really taking care of them. And you didn't have any problem doing that. You didn't um, rue the day that you left the military. Nope. It was a very clear uh, cut decision. And a lot of guys have a hard time with transition. Um, They don't know if they should get out. Should they stay in? Uh, And then when they get out, they have a hard time recreating or they're trying to recreate what they had in the military and special operations. And you see it with uh, professional sports, in professional sports, with Olympic athletes as well. They're so focused on a mission that when they get out, they kind of, they don't have that anymore. And it's hard to recreate that on the outside. So for me, it was very clear. I knew I wanted to write. I knew it was the end of my time in the military and it was time to take care of my family. So there was really no regret. There was no looking back. You're really and lucky in that way. That very lucky. So I feel very fortunate. Focused. But maybe you're focused because you were a Navy SEAL and you're used to that concentration and focus. You have to get rid of everything else, correct? And you're like that after your military career is through. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's uh, it's all about uh, this next chapter in life, all about the family and uh, being focused and knocking out of the park whatever we do next. Now, Reese, your uh, main character, uh, is no longer a SEAL in uh, True Believer, um, yet he is still on the hunt. He's very much uh, still on the hunt. How hard um, is it uh, in general transitioning back into private life? Right, so, uh, well, for me it was... Uh, 
it was not that difficult because mm. I was ready, like yeah. I like I mentioned, and um, uh, so I so I knew what I was going to do. I had my next mission in life, and yeah. you need to find that purpose. And so that transfers over to this second novel, in that he, the character James Reese is going through a transition. So I got to tap back into some of my transition questions and what I've seen in other guys in special operations, and really apply that to a fictional narrative. So mm. in this novel, he finds out that he's living again. And now he has to find that purpose, which is the same thing you have to do if you're leaving professional, really any transition in life. Yeah. You have to find that next purpose, find that next mission. And in this case, it's uh, handed to him by the United States government and some things that he did in the past. So uh, that sets him on another another course uh, uh, and uh, brings him back into under the under the grip of the of the U.S. intelligence services. It's a very dark story, uh, and his mission really is revenge because his family was wiped out in an ambush that was really meant for him so he has to set things right can you ever set things right though after you lose so much i guess that's what right. you explore so that's what uh, this is about and what the third one that i'm working on right now is about also is learning to learning to live again mm-hmm. um and that first one was really a book about revenge without constraint and that was at its base level that what it was what it was about mm-hmm. uh if you read it a little deeper it was about a guy who essentially becomes the terrorist or becomes the insurgent that he'd been fighting because he uses the tactics techniques and procedures of our enemy that worked against us in iraq and afghanistan and brings that to home soil. Um, you take it one step further, and it's about a veteran who brings the wars from Iraq and Afghanistan back to this country yeah. to the people that have been sending young men and women to their deaths from comfortable offices in Northern Virginia and Washington for almost 20 years now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you begin, true believer, with this quote, somewhere a true believer is training to kill you. Right. Gulp. And that's uh, that's I couldn't find exactly who said that, but uh, it's attributed to a special forces instructor at Fort Bragg at some point after 9-11. And what it's really about is that, hey, this is our enemy. It's we're going on their home soil and they made their web gear. They're not worried about what CrossFit workout yeah. to do. Cool. Uh, their run stops when we stop chasing them. Um, they are not going home at 1700. They are home. They live there. They know only the cause. So I thought that was a very powerful quote, and I used to read it to my guys in my troop and platoon uh, just to kind of set the stage of who we're going up against. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to start this book with that as well. Since you were on classified missions, you're privy to to some really sensitive information, and there are redactions in your book. Tell me about that. Right. So it is fiction, 100 percent fiction. Yeah. Um, and what I didn't it didn't anticipate at the outset was how much I would really delve into past experience and take the emotions behind those experiences and apply them to a fictional narrative. So that's why it resonates. I think that's why it's resonating so much with readers is that it reads true because mm-hmm. the emotions that the protagonist feels are things that I felt. Um, so aside from that, uh, it is fiction, but I wanted to make sure that I honored my former security clearances by adhering to the regulation that says anything intended for public release needs to go through a certain office at the Pentagon. So written very broadly, of course, by design. Uh, and I hadn't heard of anybody doing that with fiction before, but because this the protagonist does have my background and because it, uh, I do talk about certain things that I learned in the military, I wanted to make sure that, uh, that I was honoring those clearances. So I submitted the first one, and they took 
45 days to do a 30-day review, which I thought was pretty good Not for bad. a big bureaucracy. For the government. Uh, exactly. So I said, okay. Uh, <laughs> and, and this they took was out, DOD? This is the DOD, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. The Office of Pre-Publication and Security Review. Okay. And uh, they, uh, <laughs> they took out about nine, ten sentences, something oh. like that, in the first one. So they redacted a few sentences that I thought were a little bit odd, but okay, that's fine. And uh, second one, figure I'll do the same thing. So I submit that, and a month passes, another month passes, a third oh. month passes, a fourth month passes. So this book was supposed to come out in April, and we had to push the publication date to July 30th because they took seven months to do a 30-day review. So wow. I guess they don't, they're not uh, big readers over there at the, the DOD, perhaps. But they need to find someone that loves reading thrillers to, to do that right. job. Why uh, do you think that was? Was uh, the, the it, it more sensitive material this time or the same? I think it just depends on whose desk it ends up on and what their workload is. And I think it's a collateral duty for people over there. It's not their main job. Yeah. Um, so it gets put in the stack, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, they took out a lot more this time around. I was very surprised. Yeah. They took out about 56, 57 sentences, which sounds like a lot. But when you have 130,000 words in a novel, it's really not that that much. But uh, still enough. And the first time I didn't uh, appeal the, the process. But now, uh, at this stage, we're going to appeal it. So right uh-huh. now, my lawyers have found uh, every single sentence except for one, one, one little word, um, in official government websites and official government documents. So the appeal is going back to the government uh, with each and every sentence uh, uh, attached to official government document, official government website, where they talk about these things. Wow. Uh, so maybe when the paperback comes out, we can say, hey, see the book that the uh, government didn't want you to see. But I want to make sure I, I I, it, it's 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 not that secret like what they took out. Yeah. It's very subjective. Yeah. But, uh, but it'd be interesting if we win these on appeal. We'll see. Yes, certainly. Uh, I wanted to ask you about Mozambique. All right. That really was a, a great section uh, of the book and big game hunting specifically. Right. Uh, what did your research entail? Did you go on a big game hunt? So I went to Mozambique and I went in the fall of 2016. So I got out of the military summer of 2016 and I was putting the finishing touches on the first novel, the terminal mm. list. And I always knew I was going to write two because there are too many instances of authors that write a second novel and their first one doesn't doesn't hit. And uh, the biggest example of that probably that most people will know is John Grisham. So he wrote A Time to Kill Mm -hmm. and he couldn't give that thing away. Then he wrote The Firm, and of course that takes off. It's a movie with Tom Cruise, and off he goes to the races. And we've had a John Grisham novel every year since. Mm -hmm. But if he'd stopped... At that first one, he'd still be practicing law somewhere and not really enjoying it. So, yes. uh, so I used that as, as my example and said, okay, I'm going to write two. If both of them do not hit, then I'll take a breath and reevaluate. But, uh, but I was always going to do two. So before the first one even got sent to Simon & Schuster, I was writing and researching True Believer. So went to Mozambique and uh, really got to got to talk to the professional hunters over there, uh, the people over there, had a whole list of words I wanted to get in the different mm-hmm. uh, languages that are prevalent throughout Mozambique, mm-hmm. um, get the, the, the planes that take you into the camp, what the camp was like, um, the, the roads, the sand, the rocks, the animals, um, the, the Chinese influence in uh, mm-hmm. as far as logging operations and mining operations and how that's affecting the area. And so that's where our, uh, our hero, James Reese, finds himself at the beginning of this novel, learning to live again. Uh, and finding that that next purpose, yeah. and that's where the uh, the government finds that him. That was vivid. I I loved that section. Um, um, so 
you are on a book tour. Are you at work on novel number three? I guess you're I writing am. four of them, right? I am. So uh, number three is uh, going to start edit- editing that one pretty soon here. Oh, you're, so that's you're close done? To, uh, exactly. Oh. Yep, pretty well done with that one. And I'll start four in August, probably. So you wow. almost say a year ahead of Now, these are you things. calling Brad Thor? Calling him to say thank you. I, every chance I every get, chance. I say, say thank you. So you'll see him in the uh, the acknowledgments of every one of these novels. Uh, very prominently uh, thanked. Yes, he's an amazing guy. Any movies uh, on the horizon? Anything that you can talk about, even obliquely, maybe? Right, right. So I will say that, uh, so I can't announce anything because uh, someone, uh, yeah, we need someone else to announce things. But, gotcha. Uh, and things can always derail. So I think the, yeah. the morning of shooting, things can go off the track. So but don't think that I, uh, way. Well, I want to manage my expectations <laughs> yeah. and uh, and keep them keep them low, uh, mm-hmm. just in case things don't happen. But someone did uh, did option it, and uh, they do have a, a director and a screenwriter oh. and, a, and That's funding and all along. that stuff. So yeah. it's uh, I'm very excited about it, and hopefully they'll be announcing something soon. But the crazy part of that is, I know they tell you not to think about an actor as you're as you're writing a novel, mm-hmm. but as a child mm-hmm. of the '80s, it was very difficult not to do that. So um, although I wrote the character uh, with without someone in mind, I did think, hey, who would be good to play this guy if perhaps we got to that stage? And that's the exact person who uh, who optioned it. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. Your life so crazy. is wild. It's insane. It, it's and you insane. can you, can you reveal this? I cannot. Uh, I was afraid I you were going to say that. <laughs> uh, so so scary, so suspenseful, true believer. I can't wait for the the uh, next installment. Now, do you have a title yet for installment number three? I do, but that is, is that classified also, as well. Man, you're I killing know, me I know, here. You're <laughs> killing me. Well, I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time early on in your long book tour uh, to talk to us. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Great. And uh, once again, the book is True Believer, and it's by former Navy SEAL Jack Carr. You got to read it. Thanks. Thank you so much. In One Small Sacrifice, we meet Alex Trainer, a war photographer suffering from PTSD who has had a couple of run-ins with the NYPD since returning home from Syria. This time around, his girlfriend has gone missing and he's the prime suspect. But because of his memory lapses, even Alex is unsure of how guilty he is. I spoke with author Hilary Davidson about the first book in her new series. One Small Sacrifice is my fifth novel, but it's a new start for me. It's the start of a new series and a big departure from my other books because it's the first one where I started to tell a story from multiple viewpoints. So you have the story told from four perspectives. Um, the two main ones are the NYPD detective Sharon Sterling, who is investigating the case. And the case centers around a man named Alex Trainer, who's a war photographer. Um, he's back in New York, but he's suffering from PTSD from what he's seen on the battlefield. And his girlfriend has gone missing. And this is maybe not the most suspicious of scenarios, but Alex was involved in the death of a friend of his a year earlier. Um, a female friend fell off the roof of his building when he was the only person up there with her. And it was looked at hard by the NYPD, but they ended up deciding that they didn't have enough evidence to charge him. But Alex Trainer has remained on Sharon Sterling's radar since then. And so um, as the story unfolds, you see Sharon looking at the girlfriend's disappearance as if it's a very suspicious thing. And in the beginning, Alex being very blasé about it, believing that his girlfriend has left him. But he has memory holes. There are things that 
um, because of his self-medicating with alcohol, with drugs, that he doesn't remember. And so he starts to actually um, even get concerned. He's, he's the suspect in the case, but he's not even sure of how guilty he is. So Alex's and Sharon's are the main perspectives. And you have a couple of others, too. Uh, one character that I won't mention because of spoilers. The other is the superintendent of Alex's building, who is a shady character in his own right. You know, not only is there this gritty noir feeling to the story, you've also imbued it with a lot of modern issues like like PTSD, like you mentioned. There's the opioid crisis. There's the state of our healthcare system. There's even sexual identity in there. How did you figure out how to balance everything as you as you were putting it all in, or did it just come naturally to the story you were writing? You know, I always say that it comes from the characters. So I'm so glad that that came across, and I'm so glad you feel that that came across um, in a good way. But when I start writing, it's sort of like a process of figuring out who these people are. I know what the scenario is. I know the sort of situation that they found themselves in. And then as a writer, it's sort of figuring out, like, what makes these people t- And so in Alex's case, um, he is carrying around a tremendous amount of guilt. Um, Partly it's a little bit like survivor's guilt, like just he's seen a lot of people die and that has left um, a mark on him. But he was also, um, he was working in Syria, he was taken hostage. And this isn't a spoiler to say this, this comes up fairly early in the story, but his best friend um, was a soldier of the U.S. military and was involved in his rescue and died in the process. And so he is really um, carrying such a a burden because of that. And even um, his dog, who is one of the bright spots in the book, that was his best friend's dog that he's now, you know, taking care of. Um, His girlfriend was also on the battlefield. She was a doctor who worked with a group that went into dangerous areas. And what's interesting is when you talk about people who, or talk with people who do that kind of work, um, it's incredible the stories that come out. You know, we read these things in the news and we sort of, we're exposed briefly. But if you just spend a bit of time talking to these people about like what they've seen and what they've experienced. Um, it is incredible. And that kind of informed the book because um, sort of to, you know, just even on the issue of healthcare, for instance, we don't tend to treat things unless there's a recognizable problem. And so there are, you know, a tremendous number of people who come back from war zones or who have PTSD for various reasons because of a crime they were a victim of, like all sorts of things. And it's it's not treated. There are a lot of people who are walking around with, um, you know, problems like that that aren't treated. And I know this myself because I was a victim in a workplace violence incident. And afterwards, I developed PTSD. And at the time, I didn't even know what it was myself. I didn't really have the vocabulary to talk about it. But I would, you know, be in public and all someone would have to do would, you know, reach into a bag and I would go into a panic thinking that they're about to pull out a gun and, you know, kill people. And so I, this is an issue that I care about deeply and that I I guess I really you know personally relate to and so I find just as a writer that if there are things that I'm passionate about they tend to make their way into my stories um, and that's you know you know when you talk about the noirness and the grittiness that's partially because of things that I read and you know movies that I've watched and shows that I love and you know other authors works that I admire sort of like everything around me that I'm passionate about I think in a way it filters into the book. 
So did the character of Alex, was he the one that sort of came to you first and formed first? He absolutely was. And when I started writing the book, it was initially just from Alex's perspective of um, having his girlfriend leave. Um, He has a note from her that is a typewritten note, like a computer printed note that's not signed, which at the beginning he doesn't really think anything of. And so as that story unfolded, it was sort of... um, you know, it got deep into his head. And it, the funny thing about that book was like, well, he's not very concerned about anything. And why would he be? He doesn't realize there's anything wrong. And that was why the character of Sharon, Sharon Sterling came into my mind. I thought, you know, there has to be someone who realizes the significance of these things, who, you know, she is already suspicious of Alex. And um, to her, you know, her antenna go up immediately. And then, you know, she starts investigating and finds blood in the apartment. And, you know, it's very clear that something is wrong. But yeah, it actually started off um, as Alex's book. And once the character of Sharon came into my head. She took over so much of it. She was such an amazing, like dedicated, um, fierce kind of character. And she had her own PTSD experience with her father who'd been a soldier um, and who'd come back with PTSD. And so there's also kind of a there's kind of a connection between them where, you know, even though she's a cop and she is determined to get justice for victims, there's a kind of sympathy that she has for Alex as well. You know, I walked away from this book maybe rethinking how I may have misjudged people based on preconceived assumptions of their characters. That is, honestly, I'm honored hearing that because one of the things as a writer when you're, it's sort of a strange thing to say, but you're sort of looking for the humanity in each character. And so, for instance, the character of Bobby, the building superintendent that I mentioned, he's kind of a seedy character. When I started writing him, I mean, he was just awful. He's he a was creep. just a creep. <laughs> you know, he, he sneaks into his... Um, tenants apartments and you know the ladies he goes through their under things and you know he is a really creepy guy and when I first wrote the book you know that was sort of fine on a first draft and when I went back into it it was like there is more to this guy than just being a creep the most awful person you know there is more to them than just the sort of the awfulness that you know and so it sort of forces me to dig deeper and sort of look at that person in a different light so the whole time when I'm writing I feel like I'm doing that where I'm constantly forced to reevaluate these characters. And I also feel like everyone in the book is is keeping something hidden from someone else, but it's all because they want to protect a certain person. I guess that's just human nature. Absolutely. I think that's where, you know, the title really came from because the idea is that, you know, everyone has their secrets. And I think in real life we encounter that all the time. We might know someone for 20 years and then we're shocked to learn something about them. Um, and then, you know, in in this book there are secrets that people keep because they are trying to protect other people. Um, because they know that certain, you know, knowledge that they have is dangerous. But then at the same time, that affects how close and how intimate you can be with another person. And so there's almost like a kind of warping of relationships like around these secrets. They're like these obstacles that, you know, you you can't be that close to someone who's keeping something really significant from you. And so by the end of the book, you do have a lot of that resolved. Um, but it, it's kind of a painful thing because I think that's just human instinct to sort of think that, well, if I told people the truth about this, they would turn on me. They wouldn't like me. They wouldn't trust me. Um, my partner wouldn't want to be with me anymore. And 
you know, there's kind of a letting go that's very freeing that I think happens for some of the characters by the end of the book. You refer to the title of the book, which I think I have to say, this is the first book of its kind that I've ever read a quote from Mother Teresa. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that works its way. And that's the thing, too. Like when um, you're writing different characters, they each have their internal life. And even if there's a character who's not in the book for that many pages, they have their belief system, they have their history, and all of that comes into it. And so sometimes things like that are a surprise to me where I don't even remember where I read that, but I had to sort of go back and look it up so I could quote it properly. So the character that you're talking about, CJ, you know, so I could actually represent his thoughts properly. And uh, it's kind of a bit of a revelation because there's clearly there's a part of my brain where the characters reside, but they're like people that I know, but I'm getting to know better all the time as I write them. And see, I thought maybe that quote is what led you to the title of your book. No. But it's just a serendipitous. No, it was a serendipitous thing. It was um, really the, there was an overall idea of sacrifice. And I think because of the sacrifice that Alex's friend had made, that that was maybe my first sort of thought around sacrifice in the book. And um, that that was sort of the origin of the title. But I think once I settled on that as a title, it also meant that um, that theme kind of kept coming up with different characters in the book. And so, you know, it resonates in different ways. And I would find these odd connections. So yeah, the funny thing was, I, I had a vague memory of a of a Mother Teresa quote, and I had to go and look it up so the character could quote it properly. So I went and looked it up just so listeners know what we're talking about. And she said that for a sacrifice to be real, it must cost, it must hurt, and we must empty ourselves. Yeah. So that way readers know when they cro- when they come across that, they'll, they'll get it too. Yeah. So you mentioned at the very top of this interview that this is the first book in a series. Are we going to follow any of these characters around? Is it, Are they all going to be standalones? I'm hoping it's for Sharon. Oh, yes. Okay. I'm so <laughs> glad you said that because it's not a spoiler to say that Detective Sharon Sterling and her new partner, Rafael Mendoza, um, the two cops are going to be back and they're going to be um, investigating an entirely different crime with a different cast of characters. So the other perspectives in the book will be different, but Sharon will definitely be back. Um, that book is called Don't Look Down, and I've just been through the editing process with it. It's just going into copy edits now. And it'll actually be out in February. Um, It involves a young entrepreneur who's being blackmailed. And she goes in chapter one to meet her blackmailer to pay him off. And the meeting goes disastrously wrong, like whatever you think of as a bad meeting, so many times worse. And so that's the crime that really is the catalyst for the next book. But and you'll get some of Raphael's perspective in that, too, actually. So if you're wondering this kind of sort of quippy cop, what's he really thinking? You'll get a little bit of insight into him in that book, too. I'm sensing from that title, from the cover of this book and where things take place, there's something about heights happening here. <laughs> I, you know, and that wasn't a deliberate choice. But I will say when my publisher came to me with this cover, I had suggested to them, you know, it takes place in Hell's Kitchen and a lot of these like amazing sort of old uh, red brick buildings and these, you know, converted buildings. And so I was saying, you know, I really imagine sort of looking up. And they created this cover that's kind of like a dizzying perspective where you feel like you could fall off the, you know, the roof of this building. It's a little intimidating in a way, but I love it. And then the new book, I actually just got the design of the cover. And it's funny because you are right about heights. In this case, you are looking down at the city. (laughs) It's a 
little bit of a dizzying perspective again. And I can't say that that really came from the writing. I'd say that that's sort of the genius of the designer. It's um, Christopher Lynn has been the designer of both covers, and he does the most amazing work. But it's almost like I sort of give them some images, and I answer all these questions and give ideas, and he translates all of that into something beautiful. Well, the book you can run out and get now is One Small Sacrifice. Hillary Davidson, thank you for coming in and talking to us about it. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. A real-life string of unsolved murders on Long Island serve as the jumping-off point for this week's Beach Read. It's Girls Like Us, the new thriller from best-selling author Christina Alger. I caught up with her ahead of her current book tour to talk about those unsolved Gilgo Beach murders and the underbelly of a ritzy beach lifestyle. For people who are only familiar with the glitz and glamour of Suffolk County, namely the Hamptons and, and those parts out east, you really shine a light on the darker corners of the county. Why did you decide to do that? I've been going out to Suffolk County every summer for 40 years, and it's it's always fascinated me um, because it's such a place of extremes, and there are you know, so many beautiful parts and so many ritzy parts, as you said, and then there are some really depressed parts, and so it's it's a place I know really well, and I've always been fascinated by that dichotomy. And you also, you know, purposely choose to highlight those lesser areas and particularly the immigrant community, the sex worker community, which, you know, I think a lot of times, no matter where you are, it's a a community that's underserved and not noticed. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, wherever you find a wealthy community, there's usually a community that services that community in whatever way. It's um, sort of the working class people that, you know, cater to these wealthy communities. And I've, I've sort of touched on that in all my books. It's a theme that really interests me. And so um, out there it just seems particularly pronounced, the sort of issues of class and privilege and also race. So I, I thought it was sort of a timely, interesting topic and a really neat place to explore. I guess we should backtrack a little bit and maybe have you tell listeners what Girls Like Us is about. Oh, yes. Um, So Girls Like Us is the story of Nell Flynn, who's an FBI agent who goes home to Suffolk County where she grew up for the funeral of her father, who's a homicide detective. And when she's there for the funeral, she gets sort of pulled into his most recent case, which is the case of a young woman who's been murdered and her body is found on the beach. And as Nell sort of digs deeper, she figures out that um, this case is connected to other cold cases and it's possible that the suspect who her father was hunting actually is in the department, um, the homicide department where he worked. And I know there are lots of twists and turns to follow and we don't do any spoilers, so we're not going to go any further than that. But you were actually inspired by the unsolved Gilgo Beach murders. Yes. I mean, as I said, I'm sort of a local out there, so and I'm also a true crime junkie. So when the Gilgo Beach murders happened, I was sort of fascinated with the case. I've been following it for years. And I became really fascinated by this one conspiracy theory that's been thrown around a lot about how um, perhaps the these murders were the work of someone inside the police department. And that was sort of the springboard for this novel. And I read that uh, FBI agent Nell Flynn is the favorite character of yours that you've written so far. Why is that? She is. um, You know, I try to give my books, it's important to me to always have like a strong female protagonist and that's something I've done for the last couple books and it's increasingly important to me, but she's just really tough. She's smart. She's sort of the heroine of her own story and she's she's not a perfect character, but you sort of love her flaws and all. So I, I, I love her. I think she's awesome. 
Are there any other uh, true crime stories out there that pique your interest that might end up in a future book? Oh my gosh! Um, well, <laughs> yeah, I've been working on. I, you know, I've been working on a book for about a year now. Um, that's in this sort of sugar business. Um, I'm Cuban, so that's something that's always interested in me. Um, but I'm always kind of reading, and you know, I'm an obsessive news junkie. So that's sort of where I get my inspiration from. And your previous books kind of really touched on your finance background. This yeah. one's more in your legal background. Yeah, so um, The Banker's Wife was definitely more of a financial thriller. Um, this this is sort of more a traditional, um, you know, murder mystery. But, um, but yes, I drew in a lot of my legal background for it. And going back to your protagonist and then the, the other women in the book, there's the, the medical examiner, there's a, a pretty dogged reporter, mm-hmm. all females, yeah. and they all seem <laughs> to be the ones to be everything that's going on around them doesn't pass the sniff tent. Did you do that intentionally to make it was all these women who weren't keeping quiet and kind of banding together be like there's something not right here? Yeah I mean it is intentional. I think there are a lot of thrillers out there that either have male protagonists that are doing sort of heroic manly things or you know there's the whole kind of subgenre and thrillers of you know domestic suspense where it's sort of you know a woman who's either very manipulated or ma- manipulative and I want to I sort of like to turn that on its head and have thrillers that have really strong women at the fore and that was fun for me and the banker's wife and so this book I just kind of kept adding (laughs) more and more strong women to and I love the idea of women sort of coming together to solve this you know these women who have been traditionally overlooked um, solve their murders. Is there any chance we might see Nell in another book? Because I really kind of liked her. <laughs> yeah, I've got to say, it's funny. I've been, um, I was actually at my publisher earlier today, and they were saying, like, Nell seems like a great series candidate. And I said, you know, I've gotten a bunch of emails today asking, like, we want more Nell. So hopefully that would be really nice. I loved her. I thought she was a really fun character, and she has, you know, room to run. Yeah, and she, you know, she may not have her entire life about her, but she has a, a, a distinct sense of what's right and wrong yes. and what needs to be done. Yeah, which is, I think, you know, I think all the best kind of detective stories and, um, you know, traditional thrillers, they always have, like, these deeply flawed kind of lone wolf people solving the crime. But I, I love that about her. I think she's, you know, she's got, first and foremost, this very strong sense of right and wrong and her moral compass is in the right place. I love, too, that, you know, when the pieces start to fall together. And it's actually pretty early on. She realizes that somebody close to her might be involved. There's no none of this jadedness that like, oh no, that's not gonna happen and then it's like a thunderbolt kind of thing. Like she she's pretty smart and she figures it out and it's not this bury her head in the sand kind of thing. Well, she, I mean, that's her job. So she's, you know, she's a profiler. That's her career. And I think she's also, um, you know, a lot of this, this is a going home story. It's about going back to where you came from. And so just the mere act of going home brings up a lot of memories for her. So, you know, it's a lot of stuff that she'd sort of maybe repressed from childhood is coming back out when she returns to Suffolk County. So I'm going to guess that one of her sentiments is probably a sentiment you share, which is that you like Suffolk County in the (laughs) off-season. Yes, it's my favorite time. Um, Yeah, there's something really beautiful about it when it quiets down and you feel like it sort of belongs to the people that habitate it all year and not just this, you know, sort of crush of people that come in in the summer. So, yes, I'm an off-season kind of person. So the next book won't feature Nell, but what are you, remind us again what you're working on next. 
So I am working on a book that's sort of set in the sugar industry in South Florida in the 1980s, which is something I've been thinking about for years. Um, and the the Banker's Wife, which is my book from last summer, is getting made into a TV show. So that's exciting. When I'm working that on. is very exciting. Do we have a date when that might come out? Not as of yet, but um, hopefully soon, and hopefully I'll have sort of more exciting news about that soon. All right, great. Well, Christina Alger, the new book is Girls Like Us. Thank you for, you know, taking the time and talking to us before this uh, big book launch you have coming up. Oh, no, thank you so much for having me. And that does it for us this week. Next time around, a most enjoyable book for book nerds. You'll just have to take my word for it. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.